Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every Monday, to get your week started off right, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. I've been meaning to get in touch with someone who could explain to me the nebulous and exploding new farming industry around the ancient yet newly legalized hemp plant, and I found a gold mine of information in Doug Fine, the author of Hempbound, an American Hemp Farmer. Now Doug is known as a solar-powered goat herder, comedic investigative journalist, and pioneer voice in the cannabis hemp and regenerative farming worlds. He has grown hemp in four U.S. states, and the genetics he's developed are in five more. He's an award-winning culture and climate correspondent for NPR, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, among other publications. Now, in this interview, Doug shares the moment that he calls his climate Pearl Harbor, which set his life on a new trajectory. He breaks down the complicated history of hemp cultivation around the world and in the United States, We also unpack the gold rush on hemp products, especially CBD oils, and Doug explains his caution around the potential for a boom and bust cycle that could be terrible for the industry at large if not managed correctly. He also outlines his thoughts on a healthy and regenerative industry for hemp, not only for the land, but for all of the yet undiscovered and unstudied properties of this amazing plant, to say nothing of all the useful byproducts in the stalks and fibers. I personally learned a ton from this chat, and I'm really looking forward to watching this budding industry find its roots, so to speak, and am hopeful for a bright future for the hemp market. So now I'll turn things over to Doug. Hey, Doug, thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast with me today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm feeling really blissful here. It's hemp planting season here in the United States. Fantastic. Yeah, what an exciting time of year. There's so much uh, potential up ahead for a new year, even in the middle of this crisis. Tell me a little bit about how you and your family have been doing in, in all of these crazy current events. Acknowledging that uh, there's genuine suffering and that's something that, that I and my family care about. Um, our lives are very unaffected. <laughs> we, we made the decision to live very remote and um, try to generate as much of our lives and food and, and energy and entertainment at, 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 on our remote ranch as we can decades ago. So 
Um, the truth is, is depending on the amount of news that we pay attention to, um, our lives have hardly changed at all. Man, well, way to, to be ahead of the curve on that. I think a lot of people are considering those transitions right now. But look, um, let's jump into your specific area of expertise, although I'm sure you have others, and your new book, uh, The American Hemp Farmer. Can you start first by telling me a little bit about your background and how you got into the American hemp industry? Sure. Thanks for asking and for having me on. I grew up in the suburbs uh, back when Madonna was like a virgin, New York suburbs, and uh, something, you know, I very lucky upbringing, you know, enough food and not threatened by war and, and loved and all that good stuff. So, uh, but uh, there was something I feel quite right about the disconnect of, of uh, you know, mall life and processed food. I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, we took family vacations to national parks, which probably was very good. And I, I recognized that I was an animal in an ecosystem such as it was. So I, I lived for years in places like Alaska, um, where I learned to subsistence salmon, fish, and, and berry pick and all that good stuff. So I, I uh, became a, a member of the animal kingdom again. And then I'm like, to uh, to New Me remote funky butte ranch in New Mexico and tried to live with modern comforts but without petroleum or with much reduced petroleum wrote a book about that called farewell my Subaru and uh, things like milk and goats for reducing carbon miles and dairy and uh, solar powering the house that the ranch house um, during that time um, my closest neighbor who I don't know if you'd actually say he's in shouting distance but technically my closest neighbor uh, was the subject of a ridiculous taxpayer-funded raid. He was a re corporate retiree self-medicating from military service on one of humanity's longest plants, cannabis. Uh, today, he's perfectly legal. Um, but at that time, it was this crazy raid that put my family in danger. Uh, planes, helicopters, machine guns, guys with earpieces all over the place. Um, it spurred me. I've always been, or I've long been a fan of the, of the cannabis plant and many plants and herbs, but uh, spurred me to do some research about what it would be like if uh, America's worst policy since uh, segregation, which is the war on cannabis, were to end, where it's rather than sort of just saying, hey, here's this terrible war on drugs, what about, what does it look like when it's over? So before the league, first wave of legalizations in the States, I went uh, in a year with my family with cannabis, uh, regenerative psychoactive cannabis growers, nonprofit folks in Northern California where uh, famous growing region where um, cannabis had been locally legalized prior to federal state and federal legalization of any kind. So that was fun. That was called too high to fail. And um, while I was there, those producers, those farmers were saying, hey, we only use the flower. What about the rest of the plant? That spurred me to spend a year searching, well, what about the rest of the plant? And I wrote a book, came out on 420-2014 called Hemp Bound. And um, it is a high altitude everything that hemp can do from providing energy to regenerating uh, soil and reviving small farming economies. And then boom, right about the month that book came out, uh, hemp was federally, first step of federally was removed from the Controlled Substances Act if you were technically a research project. So uh, real farmers were really planting. Um, and I uh, wrote a hemp printed monograph about those first farmers called First Legal Harvest the year after it came out using some of the hemp that those first farmers grew in printing the monograph alongside my friends at Tree Free Hemp who uh, helped 
publish it. And then uh, I spent several years now, we're really doing it. What about a practical guide? That's what people reading Hemp Bound and First Legal Harvest asked. They said, wow, okay, you got us going. Um, how do we do it? So this book I've written now, American Hemp Farmer, it's really could be titled Worldwide Hemp Farmer. It's a farmer, a regenerative, independent farmer, entrepreneur focus. The themes are this time the farmers are in charge. Gold rushes only matter if, if instead of three cents on the retail farm dollar, farmers are getting a hundred cents less, less expenses. So it's really looking at that from a perspective of making a living for your family, reviving farm communities, and helping save carbon sequestration. That's fantastic. And, you know, this journey that you've gone through in, in investigating and talking with the people who have been in this fight since, you know, it was very dangerous. And how, like, how does it make you feel to, to live through this transition where it's going through an absolute renaissance right now and seeing all the potential just kind of flood into the market all at once? It must be incredibly exciting. Oliver, it makes me feel very, very lucky. Um, I, I can't predict the the chaos element. None of us can predict the chaos element in probability and physics that um, a, a topic that's important to you and me and your listeners, that suddenly it's really n number one economic story of the last 20 years and probably the next you know 50 years at least, the return of cannabis hemp to the above brown economy, the number one spearhead of a larger return to a biomaterials economy that can really help humanity survive post-petroleum, not just survive, but thrive. Um, it's astounding to have stumbled upon, you know, maybe slightly ahead of the curve, a, a phenomenon, a plant-based, biomaterials-based solution for humanity it's it's overwhelming to think about it and it's something that i can't overanalyze because i didn't have my all i did was say this is this is an important plant i'd like to reach i'd like to spend some time I'm a journalist this is what i do you know i was already 10 15 years into my career when i started really studying cannabis hemp plants and plants in general by the way one of the things these last five ten years of research have done really in my eyes about plant intelligence um for many people their sort of totemic re relationships are with plants so what i'm saying here won't surprise them but for me it's been sort of the goat whisperer in my family the one who could always come the 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 uh skittish uh, nanny goat on the milk stand if if she was acting up or, um and then now seeing the s arguably slower pace but just the immense intelligence of all plants not not just cannabis hemp Mm. Uh, it's a fun, fun development in my life. Absolutely. So look, let's, uh, let's go back to putting your journalist hat back on and talk a little bit about the history of the hemp industry in the United States, because I mean, it wasn't always illegal and it played a major role in shaping the country, right? It did, but humanity, um, the 77 years of cannabis prohibition in the U.S. Um, were blink, a blip in humanity's 8,000 year relationship with the plant, anthropologists call cannabis hemp a camp follower. Um, before we made the arguable of sedentary agriculture, kings and lawyers, um, we put seeds that matter to us in little pouches when we went from one you know to another. We humans and hemp was in those pouches um, in much of the world that millennia ago. So this is a, a key plant that we've co-evolved with it 
Um, we have a, a built-in endocannabinoid system for receiving the plant. Um, the plant gives us superfood from its seed, cannabinoids and health maintenance from its flower, uh, and, and party favors from its flower, and, you know, sandals, roofs, and now it's like uh, plastic composites and supercapacitors from its fiber, as well as helping build soil. We have so much stressed and um, damaged soil from a century of misguided monoculture that needs uh, rebuilding. And luckily we now have the tools with hemp and other plants. So we've, humans have always used this plant way back founding of the US, but the founding fathers did um, recognize the importance of hemp. Um, I was very fortunate to be invited the first hemp crop at George Washington's Mount Vernon estate in 200 years. Um, and it was a great experience other than the fact that colonial sickles are very sharp my thumb a little bit. But other than that, it was a <laughs> wonderful experience to acknowledge the essential role that hemp has always played in the U.S. Mm. All right. So let's talk about an important point in the book that you make. Tell me about the moment that you call your climate Pearl Harbor that you had a few years back and what it has changed in your life personally. Yeah, this is something that happened in 2013. That's still this morning when I was out in the field, I felt the sort of the hair rise on the back of my neck because I heard a mountain lion calling in the distance and I just realized, you know, Hey, this is what I've asked for, right? I have asked for this life where I get to live in an e e living ecosystem and, and truly Oliver, it is, where my sanity resides to have a hummingbird wing in the feeder outside the window be my alarm clock for our uh, chat today, as opposed to, you know, beeping or an alar car alarm someplace out, you know, in the street outside, because there is no street. <laughs> um, I'm not complaining. Um, but in 2013, um, what today is just a ho-hum, another event, uh, 130,000 acre wildfire, in my backyard, monsoon rains came a few days before we would have joined the world's 20 million, million and growing uh, climate refugees put out this fire. But before that happened, um, at the peak of the fire, a refugee um, from the wilderness surrounding our ranch uh, stormed down out of the hills, leaped into our goat pen, killed most of our goats, hung around for about 12, came back, killed more of the goats. Um, we did have some survivors, fortunately, but, um, then the bear went off and killed a bunch of neighbor's sheep and the fishing game department killed the bear. Um, and so this was a, a uh, as you mentioned, a, a Pearl Harbor type climate event for myself and my family in that, um, it's not a hypothetical event. Like we're living through this crisis right now and it's, a thing for the people who are suffering but it's a hypothetical thing thank goodness to my family because we're not experiencing it but we have experienced change means and what human what the writing on the wall is for humanity here and what you might call the uh the bottom of the ninth with two outs or if we've got a european audience maybe we're talking about overtime in the world cup football or but um the we're, we're at the the critical moment where us make as humans now matter. And one of the key things um, that it felt to myself and my family we could do to help stable climate situation was plant hemp ourselves and encourage others to plant it. And when I uh, say plant hemp, I mean outside in real soil because that stirs carbon and gives humanity a shot.
Well, so let's focus on that now. Tell me about some of the benefits that hemp cultivation can have for our soils and obviously extrapolating that out into benefits for the environment. Absolutely. The statistics, there's a lot of research about the amount of carbon, let, let's say, um, increase amount of topsoil in current ag forget about increasing agricultural land but if we if we just build an inch more tops healthy topsoil in all existing agricultural land we're doing a huge huge amount to stabilize climate and reduce carbon emissions and give humanity that window that we need to transition from a petrochemical um industrial pipeline and society and economy to a to a regenerative one so agricultural law when it's non-regenerative, what today we call conventional, I don't think it's conventional, but uh, conventional for the last 50 to 75 years, um, petrochemical fertilizers, um, uh, toxic pesticides and herbicides, that kind of thing, um, saltwater intrusion from uh, overutilizing groundwater, of course, pesticide runoff into waterways and oceans, all that business, um, that's the leading cause of uh, climate change. and positive regenerative agriculture is the leading cause. It would be the lead, leading um, catalyst for climate mitigation. So, so much hinges on agriculture. And it's one of the reasons why I am in the camp of folks who really encourages newcomers to come to agriculture, hemp agriculture, certainly, but all regenerative agriculture. There's a school of thought amongst seasoned farmers, more, more seasoned farmers than myself, let's say, that feels Oh, uh, these people that are just leaping in these greenhorns that, that, that last year where, you know, uh, uh, strip mall managers or, or all of a sudden they're planting, they don't know what they're doing. And then let's say they do a good job and they harvest, they don't know how to market it. They don't know how to store it. I mean, there's, there is wisdom viewpoint and in American hemp farmer, the book, I try to address that and give people the tools to, to plan ahead and, so we were talking about how to learn best effective ways to learn uh, second and third languages. And it's a little bit like that with farming in that you have to do it day in and day out, whether you're in the mood or not or not to learn. There's nearly no other way. Uh, we're at one, just in the States, 1% of Americans farming today. There were 30% of American farming cannabis prohibition began in 1937 and 90% of Americans farming um, when the nation was founded. So I'd love to see that 1% at least get back up to that 30%. And for that to happen, um, and, and right here I'm uh, projecting that this will be done by regenerative farming, in other words, by the techniques that help sequester. Um, if it does happen, um, you know, it's, it's going to make hemp a, a stable, uh, staple crop, the way that corn and soy and cotton are today. We need, hemp is rapidly growing. We'll have 500,000 acres planted this year. Uh, U.S. and uh, but we have a long way to go if we want to catch combined corn, soy, uh, cotton, uh, um, and wheat. I think it's 180 million acres in the states. So we have a, a ways to go. But I want to see people uh, get that seed in the ground because that's that's the only way to to save humanity, really. Yeah, that's a fantastic overlook of this. And uh, I've been looking into this aside from your book, but your book clarifies it really well. And I'm extremely excited about the potential for uh, ecosystem services that this crop has. But 
in doing interviews for this series on regenerative agriculture, I've talked to a number of practitioners and consultants who repeatedly say the best way to get uh, growers, producers to adopt anything new is to make it make sense financially. Can you tell me about the potential that hemp as a crop has for the industry of farming and the practitioners themselves and what it can do for their business models given that there seems to be somewhat of a bubble in the industry just for a few of the the many possible products that can come from this this one crop excellent question and i agree 100 percent that it has to make financial sense especially if we're talking about reviving the independent entrepreneur the this obviously has been the most struggling component of agriculture worldwide. We have farm aid, not dentist aid, right? We have a concert to support farmers because they're struggling. You have the suicide crisis amongst farmers in India and elsewhere. Um, and thousands and thousands of toxic uh, sites and former farmland in Europe, China, and, and everywhere. So it's a, it makes sense to farmers, especially farmers who are, already financially struggling and are on the brink of either having to lose their farm or give in and cave into BS development, selling out to, you know, non-needed housing units or, or, or commercial development or whatever it is. So um, again, in the book, I've really tried to lay out the metrics of what it might take for an independent farmer to succeed. Now I'll talk a little bit about that, but I'll start with the caveat which is that all entrepreneurialism is extremely risky um, especially when you're talking about relying on the whims of mother nature or whatever your spiritual word is for the divine um, so much has to go right so um, if you're gonna leap into this you have to have a multi-year plan and you have to have um, a passion that's not going to allow you to quit and, and that's not going to allow you to quit is many people have, um, you know, m most folks that I see trying to make it in hemp and regenerative agriculture are do or die. Type. They're not going to give up, but this multi-year plan issue is not so easy because we all have monthly bills to pay mortgages and, and, and kids to feed. And so it's, it's very easy for me as a journalist to say, you know, don't expect positive revenue until you've worked for a couple of years to really master, not just your farming craft, um, but your processing craft, your, uh, your marketing craft, your distribution channels. Many people don't have the resources to have a multi-year plan, but, in, but I, I do believe you must because hemp is not a get-rich-quick scheme. So as far as some of the tips that are addressed in the books are things that I've learned, and I do try to do it. I say as a journalist, it's easy for me to give advice, but it's very important for me that I I actually do this you know I've been I'm farming already today um, so this is not just um, theoretical for me I do it all I'm I go through marketing a product I would say my family's living is not dependent on my product but I'm taking it very seriously I to implement the multi-year plan as a regenerative farmer entrepreneur that I speak about as, a, as an author and journalist and speaker so first and foremost I got some really good advice from Wendell Berry, the American farmer philosopher. He's in his 80s. Uh, colleagues asked me who I thought would be a great co-keynote 
identified myself at a speaking event and I in the American South. And I said, if it's in the South, we got to get Wendell Berry. So I found out from his foundation how to contact him. You write him a letter at PO box one in his town. And of course I wrote him on hemp paper and maybe that was what impressed him, but he called me back and I've saved his message and paraphrasing. He basically said, I'm too old. I can't get to the conference, but here's the message I'd like you to convey, which is if farmers want to be successful in hemp, they have to avoid the wholesale stakes that farmers have been making in soy and other crops, namely um, taking what's offered by middlemen and um, school way of doing it. And, and just get, you know, basically getting screwed when someone else controls the prices, you have to control your industry and market your products. So I'm, the book is really big, just that when you harvest, as a farmer, your work is not done anymore here in the digital age. You're just beginning the second half of the process, which is making it. And that is not easy. It's so much work. And even if you make a great product, you've got to really work hard to get the word out about it and find the markets and find the resellers or reseller and get out to, to events and farmers markets and conferences and things like that. And if you do that, if you grow a great product, a great product and really work hard to get the word out I think that's a lot of ifs <laughs> you have a really good chance by let's say year three having a lot of success and the the, sh the short explanation for why I believe that is that fresh squeezed orange juice is going to beat frozen time as big ag moves into hemp cannabis because it's a huge and fast growing market the fastest agricultural industry ever to cross a billion dollars of revenue in some people are going to go to their chain drugstore and buy junk CBD or whatever it is in their bottle made who knows where. But the leading brand in hemp is this top shelf uh, fine wine or fine Parmesan cheese or a fine Spanish wine, whatever it is. How much that is better than just the cheap junk that one would find in uh, chain supermarket. And that is, I think, the niche to go for, for the regenerative independent farmer. I'm really glad you brought that up because so many of the people that I've been speaking to since I started this podcast, but also in the regenerative agriculture series that I'm doing is, is echoing the exact same thing in that there is a lot to be made in agriculture, but you have to look at it as like a fully integrated business. And if you're producing large quantity, not worried too much about the quality and selling at wholesale prices, there's a reason why that business model has been so difficult to eke out a living in throughout history. However, now that we have all of the technological tools for someone to run an entire business from their farm site, you're right, the, the harvest is only one part of it. But if you put in the work, if you put together a team, even if you don't have the skill set personally to do all of this and build a business that's fully integrated where you take care of the processing, you're putting out value added products and you're doing the marketing yourself. Yeah, it's a whole different business, but there is a lot of money to be made in that. And um, like you said, these sort of like cottage industries can come out of it and your business is a perfect example of that. Absolutely. A good way to revive independent economies as well, because if you're producing locally, packaging locally, you're spending money locally, there's that economic concept of the multiplier effect that keeps investment regional. You know, I really believe that there's a population of entrepreneurialism, and that's when it's focused on keeping the business 
regional. In American Hemp Farmer, I address things like how big is big enough for your enterprise? Like, what are your dreams? Do you want to be the, the Walmart of, of CBN, you know, one of the one of the 110 cannabinoids? Or do you want to create a lucrative business for your family or your coalition of farming families and your community where you kind of decide when is enough is enough in terms of both how far do you want to expand in terms of region in terms of reach do you want to be making a fine living distributing in electric vehicles within say 150 miles of your farm um or do you want to be global and i don't think there's necessarily one right or wrong answer to that um but a key component be educate well there's a couple key components one is going to be uh educating customers because are you willing to pay a little bit more for this top shelf top that's coming right from your region? And I think the answer for many people is yes. Um, and another issue, as we discussed, is sort of um, everything in a regenerative light, marketing, packaging. I know in my product, I work really hard to try to be a role model uh, using uh, largely non-like packaging and um labels that are compostable with non-toxic stickum on it and that's really expensive to do at this point but there's no in corners and in terms of knowing when enough is enough i have this example in the book that i give from a, a friend and colleague uh, in hawaii on the big island who a native hawaiian group that is reviving the hawaiian sandalwood essential oil industry that got wiped out a number of factors and the goal is they have this one with a lot of ready trees, mature, older trees, that they will process enough. They said they're not going to expand for two human generations. They're going to spend their lives and their next generations making sure that this is a regenerative amount in their forest. And guess what? It generates $6 million gross revenue per year. That's enough for them. They're like, yeah, that's good. $6 million, enough, go any bigger. So I, I like that model of uh, acknowledging limits, thinking mm. of the earth as, as a system, but still making. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very <laughs> surprisingly revolutionary way of looking at business, given that that's, it, it's in contrast to a lot of how businesses are taught to constantly be thinking about growth and expansion. Um, let's go back to something that we talked about earlier. And kind of break down this sort of gold rush on ca cannabinoids, especially CBD. Now the industry has exploded in previous years, but you make the case for exploring other cannabinoids that are perhaps underappreciated at the moment and looking at the full range of products that can come from hemp rather than just focusing on this one. Yep. So for folks who leapt into the wholesale CBD market and that Jen's growing cannabis, growing hemp as, as though it were ganja, like psychoactive cannabis um, has been growing for the last 50 years at the top shelf level, female and seeded plants, which by the way is not my taste and not my style, but uh, we'll get to that. So people growing what's known as sensimia without seed, uh, female plants. And uh, if you grew that three seasons ago, you were getting $3,000 a pound in a dispensary in Oregon for CBD. Now, today, $4 a pound. And that sounds so shocking, but it's just the way every gold rush works, you know, it's, uh, and, and every new industry works too, really. Until a market stabilizes, there's wild, wild swings where there's incredible scarcity and need and then an incredible glut, and then it starts to balance one way 
and then maybe there's a bad weather year and prices go up again and then a whole bunch of new gold rusher prospectors come in. And um, if you study the history of gold rushes, this is something's touched on a little bit in the book, the people, so the, the famous one in the States, you know, gold rush of the 1840s in California, let's say, and then slightly later in the, in the Klondike region of, of Northern Canada and Alaska. Um, the people who constantly made a lot of money during the gold rushes were the people selling the supplies to the prospectors, not the prospectors themselves. People that were selling land claims or shovel flowers and coffee and mules. Uh, some of those, the descendants of those folks are still uh, in places that I've lived in the American West. And some prospectors struck it big, but very, very few did. And then even some of those who did would get screwed over by, by unscrupulous middlemen not paying real prices or not weighing the, the take, honestly, or whatever it is. So um, leaping in and following Gold Rush, there's something in it. There's purity in our, uh, there's a, in our mindset where there's, people are going to do it. You know, it's going to be hard to keep people from doing it. I just don't recommend another CBD gold rusher because I, uh, first of all, I don't think it's the most regenerative way to cultivate. But secondly, unless you're doing your own value added marketing, there's the, 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 the adjustment has already started. But there's another reason why I don't advocate people being fluently cultivators, let alone just CBD only cultivators. And that is final quality of final product. I'm a big believer in what's known as the entourage effect of the whole plant. And here, if we're just talking about cannabinoids and flower products here, so the architecture of the plant, as many of your listeners will already know, is the plant produces a, a flower, which has uh, something like 110 known cannabinoids in it, with which the most sort of famous are THC and CBG and CBG, 100 known uh, cannabinoids that work in concert and in combination with one another and with uh, other hydrocarbons, fragrant hydrocarbons in the plant known as terpenes, bioflavonoids, to produce what's known as the entourage effect. And it's why just as different varieties of cheese and wine or very, very different varieties of cannabis and hemp are very, very different. And it's because the ratios of these components are determined by the genetics, by the, and very much by the locality. Um, there's a really misguided report that came out of a fairly top U.S. university recently that said, only the genetics matter, not where you grow it. And I'm like, oh, really? Uh, I've grown in five different states the exact same seed and had wildly different THC results. Like it matters hugely, hugely where where you grow as well as you grow. Um, and so, um, you if you're talking about just the, so that's the flower side of the plant, the cannabis. Then the seed is the superfood. Incredible omega balance um, uh, in the seeds, which you can eat whole, uh, de whole for the hearts, press into hemp seed oil, or eat the protein meal, which is the byproduct of the um, I and my goats do it all. Uh, we love it all every day. I've eaten hemp seed oil and hemp hearts already today. Um, and also uh, uh, cannabinoid intake, which I'll, I'll talk about. My product com combines flour and seed. But to get through the architecture, we've got flour now in the cannabinoid, seed in the superfood, fiber, one of, one of the strongest fibers known, but just one ar uh, plant in humanity's plant fiber arsenal uh, that is being used for everything from traditional uh, components like the hemp underwear I'm wearing today to uh, bioplastic components. I'm holding a U.S. grown 
3D printed hemp plastic boot in my hands as we speak, Oliver, which uh, <laughs> I think of as goodbye, goodbye Pacific Garbage Patch. So those are the three main components, although we also should talk about leaves, which are valuable uh, for teas and other things, and roots, which not only have traditional uh, healing components going back to midwifery uh, and herbalism years old in Western and Eastern tradition, but are key in phytoremediation, which is uh, helping clean soil. So that's all the architecture of the plant. The builder now has uh, been in the flower side, specifically this one component of CBD, although the latest buzzword is uh, CBG, a sort of uplifting uh, component that has uh, uh, showing some um, health benefits. So for me, it's not about isolating and making a pharmaceutical out of one component, a natural component. It's about growing the cultivars that I like that have ratios, the way we think of omega balanced ratios in our food, ratios of cannabinoids and terpenes in the entourage effect. Using those flowers that I like and what I do in my product is I infuse the flowers by an old, very ancient method of basically heating it up in a uh, called decarboxylation. I do, and, but the lipid that I use is hemp seed oil, the superfood, uh, from the some of it from the same plant. So I've got the flower and the seed component in one product, and that's what I and my family like to eat every day. So that's why I make a small batch of it commercially as well. So thinking beyond this one cannabinoid gold rush and into a product that folks might want to have long term in their life for health maintenance. Now, separately, if you friend Janelle Ralph of Palmetto Harmony, a South Carolina company. She started a company based on specific variety of cannabinoids, of cannabis hemp that provided the cannabinoids that helped her daughter's uh, severe symptoms for, it's a, it's a different syndrome, not directly famous epilepsy, but think of it like epilepsy. It's a, a, a seizures and a really intense condition. And she found cannabis hemp, certain varieties helped her daughter. So she started a company to grow these varieties. So for her, it is about jacking up certain components of the flower for specific needs uh, of specific people. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. What I focus on, though, is health maintenance for those of us fortunate not to be suffering. Um, and this is the model that I, uh, not necessarily producing exactly this for the same way or the same reasons that I do, but just beyond one or two cannabinoids and more into maybe I want to do a chocolate covered hemp seed. Maybe I want to do a, 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 a fiber paper product, whatever it is. Um, other than the current gold rush, I think is the smart way to go. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much potential here. Like you mentioned, it's going to be interesting to see how this industry starts to level out as it matures, as it kind of gets over the initial fluctuations of this gold rush. And as the research starts to come out, as they're finally able to better explore and research all of the different cannabinoids that, that you were talking about, and perhaps even discover others. So <laughs> there's, it seems like the sky's the limit, but it's going to depend a whole lot about how the industry adapts to it. And like you were mentioning too, sort of the business models that smaller producers are able to develop in order to keep the money with the producers and in their communities as well. And another thing that you mentioned in the book that I really wanted to highlight for a second here, because we already talked about how difficult it can be for someone to adapt a farm business model that's based just on making a product and perhaps selling it at wholesale prices, but actually going through all the steps uh, to production, marketing, 
you know, it's not going to be feasible for everyone's operation. And you highlight some of the options for the roles that cooperatives and other business configurations can play in order to prevent industrialization of hemp and keeping the money in the farm. Can you talk on that for a second? Yes. Flour, relatively easy to produce and market, although you still, we only, there's a Canadian study a few years ago that says 1% of American homes have a hemp product. So there's huge, this is true across the world, huge, only huge, huge opportunity for market growth. But there's, you know, obviously pro venues for flour products. Likewise, seed and food, um, I think is a smart long-term play, especially for farmers who have some acreage. You could do it on ten acres, but it's certainly if you're thinking of transitioning away from non-regenerative agriculture, um, growing dioecious, male and female, uh, which is what I grow, even by the way, for my flour product um, rather than sensimia. If you if you grow dioecious for seed, um, that's a really viable uh, game plan. Uh, again, if you work hard for for many years, fiber is much harder because in order for it to be valuable, it's also extremely important for humanity to produce a lot of hemp fiber, both for soil building and for the actual products that result. But um, the it requires a lot of acreage, and so what. I've been talking about for years and writing about in this book and other journalism and trying to include in the TV show. It's a dream and it's easier said than done because they, uh, farming is like herding, getting farmers to cooperate is like herding cats. Um, it's worse than that. Cat herders uh, joke about was like, you know, talking <laughs> to farmers out there. So, um, but because fiber is so low value, it's in volume. Um, there's real potential for cooperative efforts in a region. And then talk a bit about the metrics of this farmer. Um, for the cheapest, really professional turnkey fiber facility run, I'm not sure what the Euro conversion is right now, but about five to $8 million US dollar investment. And um, it requires minimum 3,100 acres, 3,100 acres, again, what is that, like 1,500 hectares, um, input to um, to feed that facility, and that's the smallest. So that's a lot, but not an insanely huge amount of acreage that's necessary to get uh, a fiber facility go going, and very, very few farmers have the capacity to grow that much, nor to invest five to eight million dollars in getting the facility going. So the dream is say to farmers, look, keep being unheardable cats, keep being competitive, you know, keep sniping at your, you know, at your competitor or whatever, however you roll, you know, hopefully not that. But um, in the end, just form a co-op for the fiber because you don't have to do much and open your gates so that the co-op truck can come by and pick up your fiber. And then everybody benefits from the resulting uh, animal bedding, uh, 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 material of uh, feed stock uh, super capacitor feed stock uh, paper feed stock um, and if we're really ambitious uh, textile feed stock so that uh, potential in fiber but it requires volume yeah, yeah yeah well I'm also really excited about the potential for expanding on the hempcrete industry I did a great interview with April McGill back on a series on natural building where she talked about all of the benefits of building with hempcrete as well and now that it's increasingly being produced in the United States. Hopefully that could be an industry that 
you know, helps to transform the way we build our structures as well. Like, like you said so many times, like there, there's just so much potential in all of the products here and the fiber being one of the byproducts, it doesn't even need to conflict with the income from the primary product um, for whatever growers incentive might be. I'm so glad that you mentioned building. Yeah, that's another big one. Um, it's really easy to do. It's very easy to make a healthy mm-hmm. structure. Um, to do it well and have it be well insulated is very a professional task. One might argue um, a bit of a learning curve for builders that do what today we think of as like the stick frame, uh, uh, chain store, drywall type building. But in the end, carbon sequestering and absolutely one. I've been in some amazing hempcrete structures. Just projects we've done around the houses unskilled my, myself and my family it's just from our own harvest it's very easy to make hempcrete very cool yeah i mean in general we need more specialized builders and every region every climate zone every context is going to need something that's properly adapted to there rather than this idea that you know stick frame and drywall is going to be applicable and the best <laughs> the best option for everywhere in the country and beyond so so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how different areas adapt to that. And as this industry continues to grow and local sources become available of products that weren't possible to work with before, hopefully the, the options are going to continue to grow and the solutions are going to be continually adaptable and localized. So I guess along that line, um, <laughs> there's, there's so much further we could go into all of these things that we've talked about today, but to, to kind of round it off, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, Doug, as well as learn about so many of these other projects that you've got going on and where they can find the book? Thank you for asking that. And thanks for the really wonderful questions. Um, I guess the quickest spots for one stop um, exploration to start are my website, which is just my name, Um, That has everything from some recent videos uh, right here. It was, I've been preparing soil uh, on the Funky Butte Ranch in New Mexico, um, links to some United Nations testimony I've done about bringing back uh, cannabis to to opportunities if you're interested in checking out some of my books uh, and or older journalism. And on social media, my handle is at organic cowboy. It's all one word with the two seasons middle at organic cowboy and if you're interested in in the book specifically they should be available uh, everywhere and i'm really interested now in doing virtual events in a fortuitous situation where at first when w- right when we finished the audiobook for american hemp farmers when everything started in the states um, and I thought, or well, no, I didn't think so much about it, but the publisher was like, oh, darn, what are we going to do? We had all these book tour events scheduled, and, and now we're realizing that by video, it's even more powerful because I'm actually here with hemp seeds and soon hemp plants. Like, our, our crop's going to sprout any day. So I tactile thing, so if folks are interested in scheduling events, I'm glad to do it. Super exciting. Well, I'm really looking forward to following all of that and uh, the the TV show coming out. All these other projects that you have sound really exciting to me. Um, I'm looking forward to <laughs> staying in touch and, and looking to you as a source for information as this continues to grow and mature as an industry too. So thank you so much for taking time today, Doug. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and let's stay in touch. Please. That sounds great. I'll very job and uh, I look forward to delving into your archive as well. All right. Thanks and take care. Bye-bye. 
All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.